understanding the, the people who participate in rugby today, um, looking at the demographics of it, are very different from football, from cricket, from, from tennis, from basketball, etc. And so we have to respect every journey you take and, and really appreciate your starting point before you can really start to think about what's right. Hi everyone, welcome back to the All Inclusive Podcast. On today's episode, I'm joined by Jatin Patel, Inclusion and Diversity Director at England Rugby. During the episode, we discuss the biggest challenges facing diversity and inclusion in sports today, the strategies England Rugby use to create a more inclusive environment for players and staff, and what the future of EDI in sports looks like. As always, before jumping into the video, make sure to hit that subscribe button, turn on your notification bell and follow on your favourite podcast platform so that you never miss an episode. That being said, let's jump in. Hi, Jatin. Hi, Natasha. How are you? Oh, I'm so excited for this conversation today. So why not just kick things off by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself and your journey to where you are today? Of course, yes. Yeah. So I'm Jatin Patel. Um, I am the Inclusion and Diversity Director at England Rugby or RFU. Um, I've been in post now for just over a year. Um, it's a new role uh, established for the organisation. Uh, I joined from DA Piper, which is an international law firm, where I was a senior manager kind of looking after the UK and Europe. Um, and prior to that, I was at KPMG in the UK. Well, I kind of transitioned into an inclusion and diversity role. I actually joined the organisation in their external affairs team, um, which is what I was doing before I transitioned into EDNI, um, but always with a focus on sort of social equality. Um, and prior to that, I worked in the charity sector doing policy and campaigns for an education charity called Impetus. Um, so, yeah, I find myself in rugby, which was a bit of a dream, if I'm honest. Um, I first never saw myself kind of walking into a corporate role, frankly. Um, uh, whilst it gave me an incredible skill set, uh, the opportunity to combine two of my passions and my job alongside my, my love for sport was too hard to not at least have a go at applying for. And uh, thankfully, it's all worked out. Oh, fantastic. I'm, I'm going to be honest. I am not an avid rugby watcher I mean I have my sister did used to date a rugby player so I do kind of know the sport a little bit um and I think we'll probably touch on a little bit more about kind of the experiences um kind of family members and things like that can have in from a, a different racial background but um that sounds really interesting from the transition from kind of law and then now into sport but it sounds as though that there's always been like a little running thread in the background of deny which is for which i found from a lot of leaders that i've spoken to um it's not necessarily a role that was overly broadcasted or that mm. was really in place what mm. five six years ago and the push has been quite extraordinary in terms of yeah. getting leaders a position that is specifically focused on kind of diversity equity and inclusion so for mm. you why why is it a role that you are doing now? It's such a good question. And, and I'll be honest, if you'd asked me back in 2015, whether I'd be working in this space, um, I would have firstly gone, what do you mean by DNI? Um, and secondly, would have said, no, no, absolutely not. Um, I was working in a sort of corporate affairs setting, um, but we were focused on social mobility, but from more so from a kind of CSR, lens if I'm honest. Uh, so when I joined KPMG, I joined that external affairs team and it was about kind of extolling the impact that the organisation was having, predominantly external to the organisation for its outreach work and 
utilizing those insights to influence stakeholders such as clients, government um, on policy. And we were doing a really good job, um, frankly. Uh, we uh, participated in the first social mobility employer index and came second. Um, and at that point, we just started doing a bit of sort of apprenticeships, a little bit of work experience, all those sort of light touch things. And it was because our head of people at the time, uh, Anna Purchase, called out to her, um, she came up to myself and uh, my boss, Jenny Baskerville, at the time and said, we should be doing this internally. And we kind of said, sounds good. Um, would you be interested in joining the organization's inclusion and diversity team? And I kind of, I mulled it over for a little while and said, well, I don't know, I don't really know anything about HR. I don't really know anything about people processes. Um, and she assured us that we didn't need to. We knew what we, we knew, we knew a lot about social mobility and the impact of one's birth, where they were born, uh, and the impact that it has on where they go in life further down the road. Um, I understood it fully from a personal perspective, being from working class background myself, and then from a research policy perspective. Um, and she just gave us pretty much a freedom to go and build it into the organization's um, inclusion and diversity strategy. So, so that's what I did every year. I kind of did both things. I kind of shared my knowledge about social mobility and what it looks like when done well, and at the same time, learning on the job what the broad EDI agenda looked like. But then, and I always say this distinctly, and I can talk a little bit later about why I say do so more so now, what HR processes look like and how you push and pull the levers of HR to help grow effectively and impactfully um, EDI strategies and bring them to life, so to speak. Um, so why I do it now is ultimately it was in hindsight, a pretty organic transition, frankly, from understanding the, the, the kind of broader lens societal issues around social inequality, in, kind of specifically to those from lower socioeconomic backgrounds and then turning that into genuine actions which people at all different points of organization should be doing and taking to drive those changes but without it just being on social socioeconomic background it's now on a broader range of diversity um and throughout all of that i think what's important to note is that i think i started off from a point of let's use data let's use kind of qualitative and quantitative insights to drive change and where I've kind of, of course, not corrected, but evolved is, the, is the, the kind of primary focus on inclusion first. It's about creating those cultures, behaviors, decision-making processes that are focused on the things that we all have in our gift, which is how can we, when faced with anyone from any background in front of us, make sure that that person feels included, that their voice feels empowered, that, they, that we're listening and utilizing that insight in a way which not only helps change systems over time, but allows them to have the best possible experience they, they can in the job that they do, and they feel a sense of belonging, um, but also most importantly, that they can flourish and want to stay. So yeah, it's probably a long answer to your question, but ultimately it's uh, it feels like a no brainer now in hindsight. Mm. And so now you've been in the sports industry, kind of <coughs> planting the seeds of DEI around, and what have you found has been the biggest challenge so far for when you're facing DEI in, in the sports industry? Um, so I'll preface that with the point that I think sport has incredible power to be a force for social good. It's a well-stated quote out there. I think um, Nelson Mandela's probably got the most famous one. Um, in terms of challenge, I think it's about how you do it in a coordinated and strategic way. I think... Most people who engage in any sport um, are inclusive by nature. 
most sports are tend to be team games and that's not to take away from individual sports of course and where they are team sports you kind of have to be inclusive if you want to win because that's probably even if you're playing at grassroots or if you're playing at elite level that's kind of one of the key reasons you do it for i mean don't get me wrong taking part is of course important but um, everyone takes a great deal of personal enjoyment from, from winning right and to do that you need your team to be effective um, you need to all play your part and at the heart of that is inclusion so the biggest ch challenge is actually going well how do we take a step back from your specific team environment and your individual sporting environment and how do we look at all the different parts of the puzzle and how do we ensure that more people are engaging in the sport and how do you utilize the united earlier as a strategic lever to do that because it needs to become ingrained in the way you do things and sometimes that can be quite a challenge and, and to some extent but i don't think the will's not there i think it's the how so i, I suppose that's probably the biggest challenge so i agree with you when you look at team sports especially um it's that old saying sometimes is that like oh we don't see color we don't see um where you're from it's just you've turned up as a person as a t as a p member of the team and this is the goal that we're all striving for which is to win um and this is we all need to work together to do it um you've spoken about and, and as you explain like this is this is what we need to do this is how we need to approach it so in your experience so far what i just want to delve in a little bit more deeper into mm. kind of the strategies because you've mentioned it that um as a sports organization that you can employ to and, and use in order to achieve those goals and make sure that people are feeling as though that they belong and feel included, not just within their own team, but actually with everyone else that's a part of, of that club or that, that um, organization. Yeah. So it kind of, I mean, I should, I should say to this, I think the funny thing is to your point about kind of things don't matter or your background doesn't matter. I think from what I've come to understand is that, on field, so everything that happens within the 80 minutes, 90 minutes you're playing a sport, um, 60 minutes you're playing a sport, I won't go to all of them, they're all different time frames, <laughs> yeah. but um, the on-field the on experience tends to be quite kind of inclusive because like you say, you're all driven by a pretty shared kind of will to win. It's like, to your point, it becomes more of a, uh, a challenge in terms of difference of experiences when it comes to off-field stuff. And that could be around the welcome you get when you join a new team or a club or it could be around how your coaches engage with you or um you know if how far your training facility is from you and your ability to get there and your access to travel or a bus route or walking on you know unlit roads etc there's so many different part pieces pieces to the, to the puzzle and i suppose in terms of the strategies we employ so we've got an overarching inclusion and diversity strategy it has four fundamental pillars um, these are in no hierarchical order, but the first one is uh, employees and board. So it's our, our organization, what it looks like, who we employ, um, the current workforce, how they experience that, their, their roles, um, how they progress, how they, um, how we retain them, kind of like that typical sort of employee, kind of employment or sort of employee life cycle strategy and view that you'd have in most, in most organizations. Um, the second pillar is gameplay. So I, I always call this the bread and butter of the strategy because it's literally everything from grassroots up to, um, up to professional. And within that, we look at it in distinct phases. So we look at kind of players, people who want to play the game of rugby. Um, how do we increase the number of diverse, diverse people playing the game of, of rugby? And one of the key ways of doing that at the moment, particularly at grassroots level, is being really targeted. I mean, rugby is one of those sports that isn't particularly diverse from a 
ethnicity, ethnicity perspective, from a socioeconomic perspective, um, is growing in terms of the gender balance. But that's one key area we're trying to be more targeted. So whilst the women and girls games growing at an exponential rate, there's still a lot of work we're doing through the Every Road strategy, um, which will hopefully bear real great fruit when we host the World Women's World Cup in 2025. Uh, and that's looking at facilities, it's looking at increasing number of coaches, exposing more young women and girls to the game of rugby, and almost kind of using it as a sort of fresh opportunity to set a brand new game to people who have very little idea about it. From an ethnicity perspective, we've got Rugby United, which is um, which is specifically targeted at 16 to 18 year olds from Black and South Asian backgrounds. And that's kind of a really kind of, it's it's a, you're playing a long game with that because um, you kind of touched on it a little bit right at the beginning, but there are some communities who have very little exposure to rugby, uh, yeah. particularly those from ethnically diverse countries and stuff. And I'm being from an Indian heritage myself. <laughs> when I told my cousins I got this job, they're like, rugby, what the hell is rugby? Yeah, um, no, literally, when it, my sister started dating a rugby player, I was like, rugby? Like, are you serious? Like, rugby. what is that? Like, and also I was very much conscious for her is that um, he was he was a white white male, and obviously she, we're twins, so she's she was a black female, and and so for me that was one of the things like she's she's one of those partners when she's with someone she fully commits to them, and so yeah. she would be she is that girlfriend that would be in the stands cheering you on, um, and so for that's one thing that I was a bit apprehensive for her is that you do realize, and that's what I said I was like you do realize that you're probably going to be like the only black girl in the crowd. <laughs> How is that exactly going to be? It's a strange experience, isn't it? And it's, it's a perception issue that from outside that you kind of go, oh, well, rugby's not for me. Like, you don't see any black and brown people in the stands or playing or in the coaching staff. So actually, is it a sport for me? Um, so we're trying to under, we're trying to kind of almost like, you know, mirror some elements of the women and girls strategy to sell the game, market it in a more inclusive way. But kind of go, we're going into regions around the country to bring clubs together to kind of have joint action plans specific to their locale to understand who are the potential community partners we've got? Who are the existing community groups? Who are the schools we could be engaging? How do we bring these people into our clubhouse environments? But actually more importantly, how do we ensure the welcome they have when they come into those environments is a positive one? How do we build role models? Essentially, how do we change, how do we, I always say, people get scared when I say changing cultures. It's not about changing, it's about evolving cultures, yeah. right? To make the most of all the possible talent and participants you can have in your respective area. So that's one kind of very clear way of being really targeted. And at an elite level, it's a bit more complicated, but that's not to say it's not doable. We're trying to understand the systems right now. So who, what was, what is the kind of majority way people access the elite kind of game? Um, what is the experience of those who've not come from traditional backgrounds? And, and you know, let's call it spade a spade. Rugby is predominantly kind of um, filled with people who've come from private school backgrounds and that's not their fault it just so happens that the game has been built where schools with the most amount of facilities and resources to put on rugby have done so and shock horror they've been able to produce the most amount of players who play at the highest level of the game how do we make sure that the state sector has much more access to rugby on the curricula onto in terms of fields in terms of the very basics of um, kind of equipment you know kit etc so the, the game plays that kind of that second pillar. The third pillar is um, fan followers, fans followers and partners. So, how do we how do we diversify the content that we're producing that goes out to prospective and current fans to not only communicate the ambitions that we have around EDNI, but also how do we attract different audiences and. This is a one where we have to play a really kind of careful game because I think a lot of industries sometimes fall into the trap of going, oh, diverse content means 
just more people from different kinds of backgrounds and then you kind of smush it all together and create this content and go well and you create a picture that people within the respective game or organization that that content represents don't recognize it so we've got to try and tra we're trying to try a really careful line between kind of going let's champion the people that we've got from diverse backgrounds absolutely but let's do it in a really organic way let's yeah. do it in a way that tells their story accepts that they've had face barriers and challenges and access in the game but now that they're in it they love it they're having a great time they are at the top of the very top of their sport particularly if we're focusing on people at the elite end of the game mm. um and by utilizing that journey that, that deep story that kind of connection we're trying to sell the game to different ones and i'm not saying we've made a massive impact yet we're just on it we, we are on a journey and we have to always be honest about that and as yeah we go forward. i think that's important because um, i think many mm -hmm. people think that when you start any sort of diversity and inclusion initiative it means to be successful straight from the jump <laughs> which is not possible i mean it is in some cases great for some things but not for yeah. everything and especially when you're dealing with some like deep rooted culture um it's it's not going to happen overnight it's it's definitely it's it's a what does i say it's not a sprint it's a marathon Absolutely. <laughs> it's a analogy. It, exactly right and i could never run a marathon but no, i am trying to in a, in, a, in, a, in a symbolic way absolutely and exactly that point and also we we all have different starting points right like one of the the age of questions i get asked is like oh so how do you compare to other sports and i try to avoid it as much as i can because yes there are similarities because we're you know you have community and elite environments within respective sports but at the same time um, i understanding the, the people who participate in rugby today um looking at the demographics of it are very different from football from cricket from, from tennis from basketball etc and so we have to respect every journey you take and, and really appreciate your starting point before you can really start to think about what's right you can of course lend and lean from on others but you have to reflect what's in front of you frankly and, and i think that's a really important kind of takeaway um the other part of that strand is, is our partners we have a lot of uh, corporate partners um i'm flashing one at the moment on my on my top <laughs> um and you know that's they, umbro for anyone who's not watching the video he's got a really um, cool umbro yeah, <laughs> England rugby jacket <laughs> exactly um but they you know they're, they're big big organizations of huge amount of reaches and have very similar ambitions frankly to be as inclusive as they possibly can in the most and how do we work with them to not only maximize the reach we can have but lend on their knowledge and experience the people who, who work and purchase their products etc and do it in a really meaningful collaborative way because i think that's another key part of our edmi strategies you can't always do it by yourself um it's very rare that you have an organization that's significantly large that doesn't have many external stakeholders to worry about to be able to have to and have to do it yourself every organization if you're a big four accountancy firm if you're a legal firm you have clients and engaging them on this journey is critical right um and then the final pillar of our strategy is um is game leadership so essentially that's all the wonderful volunteers that we have out in the game at community level who run clubs who run regional associations um up to our council members our councils our, gov our kind of chief governing body um trying to diversify that group of individuals um but most importantly trying to get them to understand what inclusive leadership looks like taking them through trainings to embrace it as a tool of opportunity not as a sort of a stick with which you to be beaten um to ultimately help them 
do the bare basics that I touched on earlier. So how do you chair meetings in an inclusive way? How do you welcome different voices to the table? How do you make sure you're meaningfully listening to what they're saying so they make a decision as a result of it? Um, and ultimately, how does that cascade down into kind of the future pipeline of people who come into these positions who ultimately then make the decisions that help the game evolve over time? So yeah, those are the four kind of pillars of our strategy. Um, it's quite a new one, to be honest. It's only been in place for a year and a half. Um, and I think we're starting to see some impact. Um, and, and I kind of said it at the beginning, but the, I always say that those are the four kind of concrete pillars. Um, within that, we kind of have three kind of key enablers. Data and insights is absolutely the, the first one. Um, the second one is around education and training. Um, and the third one is around sort of leadership and advocacy. Uh, and for me, those three things all tie into the ultimate umbrella of how do you create an inclusive culture. So, yeah, I'm doing that strategy on a page thing, like verbally right now. But ultimately, that's that's the cells. That's how we do it. No, no, it, and it all makes sense. And it, it sounds like a really great strategy. And I wish you all the best for that. And um, I think it's important to to know that actually having the data and the insights is, is really going to be one of the clearest ways to see where you are and how far you've come in your journey um which i don't think many i think some leaders tend to sometimes struggle with um yeah. so i'm i'm interested to know when it comes to the data and, and insights part of it what have you found to be really useful in being able to kind of really put the numbers down on paper yeah, it's um, so. I mean, in previous lives, it was probably a bit easier because I was in organizations that are very comfortable with reporting on a quarterly, half yearly, yearly basis. Um, and the sort of numbers were used very regularly on all, all kind of kinds of performance indicators, right? I think with rugby, it's really interesting because I think um, we because we don't have when I when, I, when I'm asked, like, what does the game look like in terms of its demographics. I wish I could give a clear answer. Yeah. I can't currently because whilst we've got a system which registers everyone who participates in rugby across the country, we don't get asked these questions. And we're going on a journey to get these questions asked. So when I, by that, I mean we currently ask gender. We currently um, ask age, for example. But we don't yet ask around ethnicity, disability, socioeconomic diversity, um, LGBTQ plus status, etc. And one of the reasons is that we need to we need to sell why we're asking these questions and in a, in a really trusting way. We need to build that build that relationship, so to speak, build that trust, because these are really deep-rooted um, personal questions, ultimately, about people. And the difference with us being is that because we're a sport, um, people choose to play our sport. They could choose not to play our sport when they're in an organization and you're employees. I'm not saying you can't mandate these questions, of course, but there's a way of compelling people to do it, which is different wherever you are. So it's quite difficult to some extent. That said, we're becoming much more kind of much more advanced in the way we collect data and utilize it. So we have a, a number of surveys we put out across the year for our staff, for for the community game, for the now elite game, which are specific around IND. So we, we kind of are able to understand the inclusivity sentiment that people have towards the game and how they're experiencing it, elements of discrimination they may or may not have experienced themselves or witness. And we're utilizing all of that to power the actions that we take. Um, I think one of the critical things in terms of reporting and, and utilizing data is I always always say data and insights. And it sounds simple. It's not semantic, I promise you, because the numbers are really important. If you don't take time, in, and I would say equal amounts of time, to ensure you're gathering qualitative insights, to understand the stories, the kind of the word of mouth of people and the way they're experiencing a sport, 
and it's hard to kind of tell the full side of the picture because data is really, really important, particularly for, for any good EDM strategy, but you have to spend and invest in time to make sure you're engaging with underrepresented groups on a semi-regular basis at the very least. So you can ensure that the, the actions you're taking are data-driven, insight-driven, that you can monitor the impact that you're having through the story and the kind of the human side of people playing your game. And then, of course, you have the numbers to be able to show you how things are growing or, or not um, based on the strategy that you put in place. So um, data is critical. It's uh, it's a hard, it's a grunt job, right? It's it's difficult at times. Reporting it can be can be tiring as well, um, particularly if it doesn't tell you much um, in a short space of time. But as you said earlier, it's a marathon, not a sprint. So starting it, creating the systems, and making sure you're utilising them as regularly as you can, as effectively as you can, is is, is so so important. No, thanks so much for sharing that. I love that you have you've mentioned that actually. You're not running straight in and asking those difficult questions, mm. which are quite um, personal, can be quite personal for, for certain individuals. And that's not something that um, it's not something that me, I personally have really heard from from a leader really talk about is the fact that actually when you're starting this, if you don't already have those questions set up, which for some organisations they already do, it's like a standard question that's asked in the kind of the company survey that goes around every year. But actually, it's quite an interesting take when it comes when you're looking at sports is that people choose to play the sport and therefore they might not be open, might not be willing to kind of reveal all of that information straight off the back. And um, and especially with sports, with, with a, a predominantly like masculine kind of sport, there is some some elements of some of those questions that some people just aren't going to be comfortable with 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 explaining. And um, I, I like the fact that you're actually working on building the trust that those individuals know that they can and trust in 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 your club in in rugby that actually when you do tell us this it's going to be anonymous it's not going to be revealed and we're going to use it and turn it into a positive for you to make your experience better um yeah. so I, I i love that <laughs> yeah it, do you know what? it's i think it's critical like you say because if you're if you're deliberate about your dni strategies um if you want to see progress, then you have to explain why you're asking these questions and, and how it's going to be used. And like you say, there's such a positive story to be told. It's like, don't shy away from it. Like, if you're genuinely going to use that data to create a new program that's targeted at, you know, increasing um, leadership for underrepresented groups, fantastic. Why don't you just tell people off the bat that we need that data to understand what the baseline and benchmark is and then move forward from there? Mm. Uh, and like you say, equally, there'll be some individuals who aren't ready to be open about their sexuality who find the questions around parental occupation when asked about social mobility really really invasive or just don't understand it it's like why do you why do you need to know what my chief parent no, sorry my chief income earner of my parents was doing when i was 14 like what a convoluted question like, so there's almost a responsibility to explain why certain questions are being asked and like i touched on you've got to build that trust to explain why it's going to be used so yeah super critical i'd say Mm. So what do you see the future of diversity, equity, inclusion for the sports industry looking like? Oh, it's a big question, isn't it? Um, I know. <laughs> I, <laughs> I think, I mean, look, I think um, when I was in, 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 in previous roles, I was always asked about the business case. What's the business case? And there's now been numerous reports, this research that proves that 
you know, being more inclusive and diverse can, can boost bottom lines, can help with innovation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I won't quote all of the, the various reports, but I think for sport, it boils down to pretty a pretty simple thing, which is participation. Like, sports don't exist if people don't play them. It's as simple as that. Some businesses could exist if people, if people didn't work there, for example. But sports doesn't, don't exist if people don't play them. And it boils down to exactly that. So I think the future is about the closer that people can start, start to embrace inclusion, diversity, and equity in line with how to increase the, the number of people playing their game. And they use those and see it as an opportunity. And I mentioned earlier that as a strategic imperative, because that's the thing, I think you could, you could almost do bits around the side and go, do you know what? Yes, it's the right thing to do. We need to be more inclusive. Yes, that's one side of the story. But actually to grow your game, and there are some sports that probably don't need to grow. And, you know, I never talk bitterly about football because I love it, but there are, you know, it's, it's a different beast to some extent because it's such a universally spoken language. And um, football in this country is well, you know, it's 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 well participated. It's got it's got the, the fan base of everything, and everyone kind of looks at them as a sort of yardstick. And I think that's probably sometimes a bit dangerous to do so. If each sport that kind of has a retention and participation issue looks at it and go right, EDI effectively use my strategies and tools and help us grow this game and the wonderful byproduct of that is going to be diversity with different people from different backgrounds and the longer term outcome of that is that like we've talked about it then feeds down into family heritage and i think that's the beauty of sport right it's so personal it's so personal as is one's diversity it's about you it's about enjoyment at the end of the day as well it's about keeping fit keeping healthy all these positive things so in terms of what I think EDIA will look like in the years to come, I think it will be much closer to, to how you grow the game, how you increase the number of participants. Hopefully, about the available experiences at the highest level as well, in terms of pay and fans turning out to watch games for the women's game in particular. Um, and hopefully, I always I've got a post it. I won't show it to you. I've got a post it on my screen that says "Work yourself out of a job." But that's what I'm trying to do, right? So eventually, in time, that's obviously the much longer term goal. Is that it all becomes absorbed into one conversation, so you don't need to, you know, to pull out EDI as a, a specific area of work. So, um, and I, I truly believe sport has the greatest opportunity for that to be true one day, because, like I mentioned, the ultimate aim of sport is to is to have fun. Yeah, no, totally. Oh, that's fantastic, chatting. I've so much enjoyed our conversation. Um, this is great, and so. Just lastly, before you have to leave us, I would love to hear from you any advice that you have for leaders out there that are working in the EDI area. Patience. Take your time. Um, don't be afraid to repeat things over and over again, because you will have to. Um, to be kind to yourself, um, it takes a heavy emotional toll on individuals, particularly those who've got responsibility for EDI specifically. Which um, I don't. I don't think I've met any DI practitioner who doesn't take it personally, and that's kind of one of the reasons why they're in this space. Um, and that's a good thing, but it can also become a bad thing personally for individuals. I'm sorry, I've gone deep very quickly, but yeah, be patient, be kind to yourself, um, and don't be afraid to be ambitious. And actually, so there's one more. There's always a, there's always a list of three, right? But I'm gonna give you four. <laughs> no, um, that's great. The, the fourth one is um, just try something. You don't need to wait until you've got a big shiny board approved strategy in place to start making games on, on inclusion and diversity. I think 
have that conversation try to understand your people better learn something new be curious be be just just be thinking it's not even thinking outside the box it's thinking about the people around you and go why isn't that person playing their sport or why isn't this person engaging in in the way we want them to be go and ask those questions because nine times out of ten i say this personally like if someone wants to understand something better about my indian and hindu heritage i'm more than happy to share um just don't always expect the answers from me to how to fix things. Yeah, no, <laughs> it's true. That's right, like... that point's really important. But <laughs> if you want to know more about me and my family and my culture and how I brought up, I'm more than happy to talk about it. But don't expect underrepresented groups to, to fix the system that currently works against them because shock horror, they didn't create it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. Oh, I've, literally, I can't. <laughs> I'm smiling ear to ear. This conversation was so great. And um, thank you so much again, Jasmine, for, for sitting down and having a chat with me today. Um, it's been fantastic. And I know a lot of listeners out there, any rugby supporters, um, will definitely value the input and the great work that you're doing, as well as everybody else and, and myself. I appreciate everything that you're doing. Um, and, and thanks again. And hopefully we can speak again soon and see how you're getting on in a couple of months, in a, in a year's time. <laughs> yeah, more than happy to. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a great conversation.